it's an honor to stand before you and open God's Word with you. I invite you, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 9 through 18. When a couple gets married, I'm assuming you've either had your own wedding you've attended or you've been to numerous weddings, there's that point in the ceremony when the couple recites vows to one another. And the traditional vows going all the way back to the 1559 Book of Common Prayer version of those vows, husband and wife vow to one another to be faithful to each other, to have and to hold the other, you know those phrases, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And what strikes me is that everyone who gets married on their wedding day, blissfully idealistic and hopeful, everybody's thinking about how much better life is going to get starting that day. Nobody on their wedding day is standing there thinking, what if I experienced the worst part of this? Earlier than scheduled. (laughs) But we'll take it. Nobody stands there thinking, I'm probably going to go through things worse than I expect. I mean, it's right there built into the vows for richer or for poorer. So there could be financial troubles, job loss that you go through as a couple. Uh, Health is right in there for in sickness and in health. So one or both of you could have cancer or other health complications, you could have a miscarriage, you could lose a child, all kinds of things may go worse than you expect. I mean, what if your spouse changes as a person but not for the better? What what if they change for the worse? They become less mature, less responsible, less kind. Nobody on their wedding day is expecting that. So when I do pre-marriage counseling with a couple, one of my goals is just to prepare them for better And for worse, I don't want to scare them and tell them marriage is going to be awful. That's not the goal. It is a joyous thing. It's a gift, and they should expect it's going to be good. But neither should they go into it just assuming idealistically it's going to automatically be a cakewalk. What does it take to make a marriage sweet and joyful? One of Paul's aims throughout this letter has been to prepare Timothy. Because when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to living as a disciple of Jesus and following him, to living in gospel community, to living on gospel mission along with other believers, it's possible for us to be idealistic and unprepared. And that gap between our expectations and reality, that gap is what we call disappointment. And to live the Christian life without some awareness of some of the challenges, the difficulties, the hardships, some of those things that would fit under the for worse category. To, to go into the Christian life without an awareness of that could set you up for brutal heartache. So Paul's been seeking to prepare young pastor Timothy to keep the faith, to run the race, to guard the good deposit, to hold fast to Christ for better or for Worse, in chapter 1, verse 8 of this letter, he told Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
He repeats that in chapter 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier. He told us in chapter 3, verse 12, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's that pastoral aim that courses through this text this morning in what is arguably one of the, the saddest paragraphs in all of Scripture. And so, out of our reverence for God, who spoke to us through His Word, infallibly, authoritatively, sufficiently, clearly, I want to invite you to stand with me, if you are physically able, as I read 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 18. This is God's Word. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you, by your Spirit, inspired Paul as he wrote these words and recounted to Timothy the very real, very painful, very sad situation that he was in at the end of his life. And we believe that your Spirit inspired these words for our instruction and our edification, for the sake of our faith. And so would you accompany this proclamation of your word with your spirits working in our hearts and our minds so that we would be fortified and strengthened and established by supernatural grace in order to hold fast to Jesus for better or for worse, come what may, that we, like Paul, would hold fast and be able to say, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I think we can all agree that endings just in general are typically sad. Endings are sad, goodbyes are sad, but this ending in particular it, it's especially pitiful. This is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles who traveled throughout the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel, planting churches, suffered greatly throughout his life, and after all of that ministry, after all of that gospel proclamation, these are 
his final words in his very last letter written in the last days of his life. Not from his retirement community on the beach playing golf every day in comfort, but from a prison cell awaiting execution. After all that he had been through, this is all he has to show for it. These are his last words. His death is imminent and he knows it. We just saw couple verses before this, we saw last week, the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In fact, he probably is not going to live through the next spring, which is why he tells Timothy right off the bat, do your best to come to me soon, or literally in the Greek, make haste to come to me quickly. Double emphasis on speed and urgency. Come to me, Timothy. And then he repeats that in verse 21. Make haste to come to me before winter. Why before winter? Because couldn't travel overseas during winter, and by spring it would probably be too late. So he does not have long to live. And as he impresses on Timothy the urgency of this request to come to him in person, he gives him reasons. Beginning in verse 10, he says, for, which means because, here's why I want you to come to me face to face, come visit me in Rome, and then he goes on in the rest of the paragraph to lay out with painful honesty this loneliness that he is experiencing, this hardship that he is enduring for the sake of the gospel. And I believe that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write these words to Timothy to prepare Timothy and you today, 2,000 years later, to joyfully endure the pain and the disappointment that comes with gospel ministry. I think God, he always has a gracious purpose in his word. And it's a gracious thing that God would prepare us a little bit to know what to expect in life so that should we, under God's providence, experience those things, we would not lose heart, but that we would hold fast to Jesus. So Paul lays out these realities, the reality that living on mission Living as a disciple of Jesus in this fallen world comes with painful sorrows, and there are many. One of those painful sorrows is that co-laborers in the gospel who formerly walked with you, stood with you side by side, may desert you. Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was at one point a faithful co-laborer in the gospel, working with and alongside of Paul. His name shows up in Philemon 24, in Colossians 4.14. He's listed as one of several fellow workers. He's listed always close to Luke. So we know Luke was traveling with Paul. He wrote down the account in the book of Acts. Luke is mentioned here as the only one who was still near to Paul. Demas is always with Luke, but Not anymore. That was then. This is now. Now Demas has abandoned Paul. And why? Paul tells us because he was in love with the present world. That word translated world is aeon. It could be translated age, this present age. I think that might be a more helpful translation. In love with this present world, the problem was not that Demas enjoyed Physical things like the beauty of sunsets or the pleasant sound of music or the aroma of steak on the grill. Not the world in in terms of physical, tangible things. He was in love with the present age. Remember, Paul has said everything God created is good. Everything God made is good and meant to be received with thanksgiving and it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. But 
Demas was in love with the spirit of the age. You familiar with that word we borrow from German, Zeitgeist? It means the, literally the spirit of the times. Whatever's trendy, whatever's popular, whatever's in fashion right now, whatever the world believes, the, the, the received wisdom of the world, Demas was in love with the spirit of the age. Paul warned the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, differentiates the gospel from the spirit of the age when he said, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, wisdom from God, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. To be in love with the current age, whatever age you find yourself in, whatever is in fashion in that age, it, it's to chase what's cool. And if you've ever tried keeping up with what's hip or cool or trendy, you know how fast things change. It was cool then and it's not anymore. I mean, have you ever looked at pictures of yourself from 10 years ago? I did. I, I wore what? <laughs> I can't believe I thought that looked good. I did what with my hair? I don't have that problem, but... I have to go back longer. But those who crave popularity and relevance and acceptance from the world will abandon allegiance to Jesus sooner or later. So as you trust in Jesus, realize that one of the risks you're taking is being rejected by the cool kids, kicked out from the cool kids' table, which means we should prepare now, as Paul told Timothy, not to be ashamed, not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, the God who saved us, the God who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, get this, before the ages began, Grace given to us before the ages began, long before anything was ever cool, long after those trends pass away. Grace that spans from age to age. That is the grace given you in Christ Jesus. And so resolve now to hold fast to that grace because others may desert you. Living on mission comes with difficulties. Enemies may harm you. Look at verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So we don't know if this is the same Alexander who's mentioned back in 1 Timothy 1 who made a shipwreck of his faith and Paul handed him over to Satan. Could be the same guy, and if it is, it's possible that he held a grudge against Paul and seeking to get even with Paul, found an opportunity to hand Paul over to the authorities and get him in trouble, and maybe that's how Paul got arrested. We don't know. Whoever he was, we know he was a hostile enemy of the gospel, and he was not merely an idle threat. He actually did great harm to Paul. Paul's not just saying, he was a threat to me. No, he did me great harm. He caused harm to Paul. And he's still on the loose. And so Paul has to warn Timothy, watch out for him. Whether he was in Ephesus or maybe he was on the route Timothy would have taken to get to Rome, watch out for this guy because he is a 
vehement opponent to the gospel, and he will take any opportunity he can to harm you and to oppose the preaching of the gospel. Loved ones, I think that the Spirit of God by this wants to warn us so that we would not be naive and unprepared for some of the realities that we face in this world. It's possible to grow complacent and naive when you live in relative comfort and security. I grew up in inner city Chicago and a suburb of New York City. I had multiple bikes stolen out of our backyard in Chicago. Uh, I got robbed with a friend at a park in New Jersey by some other kids. And then we moved to Brandon, South Dakota when I was 13 years old. Made a friend in the neighborhood. We rode our bikes up to the, the grocery store. And I went to find the bike rack to lock my bike up. And he just ditched his bike and started walking in. And I said, what are you doing? He was like, what do you mean? We got to lock our bikes up. And he just looked at me like, why would we lock our bikes? Why would we ever do that? I said, because people steal bikes. And he just, like, that was not a concept in his mind at all, which is a great blessing. I mean, if you've experienced that kind of security, be grateful. When you have lived in other situations, you realize there are dangerous people who do dangerous, harmful things, and you become a little bit more mindful of that. Not that you have to lose You have to look skeptically at every single person you meet, but you realize this is a reality. Jesus sent his disciples out into the world saying, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And Paul wrote in Philippians 3.18, Many, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are a lot of enemies, and Paul felt it was his duty as a pastor and apostle to tell the church repeatedly, not everybody's friendly, and many people will oppose the message of the cross. So when that happens, don't be surprised like something strange is happening to you, but be prepared. How will you respond when enemies of the gospel succeed in hurting you? Paul says in verse 14, regarding Alexander the coppersmith, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. As you faithfully follow Jesus, you you may be violated, you may be opposed, you may be canceled, you may be marginalized. So, So where do you get the grace to endure injustice done against you without retaliating sinfully? That's the question. Because what Paul's doing here is not spewing bitterness. He's not plotting how he can get even with Alexander. There's no tinge of resentment in what he says there. In fact, he's simply living out what he teaches in Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's where this comment comes from. Paul lives his life with this awareness, there is a God in the heavens, who judges justly. So if anybody treats me unjustly, I never, ever take it into my own hands to retaliate because God will repay justly. And so I entrust myself to him. Those who know and trust a just God never have to take it into their own hands to enact their own justice in the world. And can rather pray for those who persecute us. 
bless those who mistreat us. Living on mission comes with difficulties. Enemies may do you harm. Friends may fail you. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. All deserted me. No one came to stand by me. And yet, the very, very end of this letter, Paul sends greetings to Timothy from some other believers in Rome. He names Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudius. So apparently there were still some faithful believers in Rome, but they just weren't there for Paul when he was on trial, when he was giving his own defense on trial. They were nowhere to be found. They may have been afraid. They may have been embarrassed. They may have been preoccupied with other business. Whatever it was, they weren't there. However, we know that this is different than Demas. Demas was in love with the present age, and he abandoned the faith. We don't get the sense that everybody in Rome abandoned the faith and turned away from Christ. They just failed to provide Paul any companionship, any support, any encouragement in his time of need. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised. Even as you look around a room filled with brothers and sisters in the faith, we're committed to one another in gospel community. That's what our membership covenant means. We share in the joys and sorrows of life together, and yet even these dear ones around you may fail you. They may fail to give you the kind of encouragement you need, you think you need. They may fail to give that word that strengthens you at just the right time. They may fail you. Listen to Spurgeon. Be not surprised when friends fail you. It is a failing world. Never count upon immutability in man. Inconstancy you may reckon upon without fear of disappointment. The disciples of Jesus forsook him. Be not amazed if your adherents wander away to other teachers, as they were not your all when with you. All is not gone from you with their departure. So how will you respond when friends do fail you? Look at Paul's response in verse 16. May it not be charged against them. What gracious words. May it not be charged against them. That kind of gracious response, again, no bitterness, no resentment, just just grace. That, that comes only when you know your own need for mercy. When you think about when you stand before God, what do you ask for? Mercy. If you stand and ask God for mercy for your failings, for your sins, then how could you stand before God and ask him for anything less for others? God, be merciful. May it not be charged against us. Living on mission comes with difficulties. Here's, here's one more. The mission may separate you from those you love. Not all the departures and separations that Paul mentions here are because of sin. Some of these were actually strategic. He says in verses 10 through 12, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So some of these are fellow workers deployed for the sake of the gospel. They are doing important work. Nonetheless, their departures still hurt. And Paul's not a stoic as he sits in prison alone. He has made incredible sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, security, comfort, companionship, but they're still sacrifices and they're still painful. I mean, if we had it our way, wouldn't we 
just gather all the people we love into one place and nobody would ever leave. I've quoted Charlie Brown on this before. Goodbye always makes my throat hurt. And yet the gospel mission requires that some will leave to take the gospel to those who haven't heard yet, to carry on ministry in places where there's nobody else to carry that on. And so we have this awareness that as our discipleship huddles grow, they multiply. And then you think, man, I miss huddling with that person. As your MC grows, you get a point that there's not enough room for everybody and you multiply. And you think, man, I miss when I was with those people weekly. It's not the same. As churches grow, they multiply. It's always been our vision from the beginning to be a church that plants churches, whether that's the other side of Sioux Falls or the other side of the world. And we realize that as exciting as that is, it's also relationally difficult, painful to say goodbye to people. It's hard for me to think about sending out a core team of 50 to 100 people from this church someday to go plant another church. I just think, I don't want any of these people to leave, ever. And yet the mission may call for it. Only in Christ can we embrace the tension between ministry here and ministry over there because the gospel binds us together in unity and the gospel compels us out into the world for those who haven't yet heard. So how will you respond when people you love leave for the sake of the mission? This is where we have to watch out. The flesh responds by holding people at arm's length just saying, I I know how to handle that. I just won't get very close to people. Then they won't hurt very bad when they leave. Listen to C.S. Lewis. These are wise words. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And so... Trust in Jesus to look after you so that you can be set free from fear and that fearful impulse to lock your heart away forever. Living on mission comes with painful sorrows, but it also comes with sweet joys. I don't mean to say living on mission is just going to be a miserable thing. We want to be aware of some of the hardships that may come so we're not shocked by them, but it's also important to know how to experience God's grace. What are the means of grace God supplies to us so that we can experience joy as we endure hard things? Just like in marriage, you have to know how to cultivate and pursue joy. So Paul, sitting alone in this cold prison, notice what he asks for. Three things. He asks Timothy to bring three simple, tangible means of God's grace. He asks Timothy to bring friends, to bring a cloak, and to bring his books. 
He says, Timothy, bring, bring yourself, and as you come, bring Mark with me because he's useful for ministry. So just think about that. We know from two letters to Timothy that there was important work to be done in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. There were opponents. There were false teachers who had to be silenced. There were disciples to be multiplied. Important work in Ephesus. Just consider in this time what travel from Ephesus to Rome over a 1,000 miles, what that would require. This is not like take a weekend flight, come and see me and head back. This is probably 6 to 12 months of time away from the church in Ephesus, and yet it's important enough to Paul to have Timothy face-to-face because that is a sweet thing. This weekend, Greg and Lori are in Roseburg, Oregon, visiting one of our sister churches from our region. I'm grateful that they can just go out there and come back in a weekend. That's, that's nice. But we value those face-to-face interactions. We value face-to-face meetings with our discipleship huddles and our missional communities and our church family on Sunday mornings because God communicates his grace to us through people and through conversations and through a pat on the back and a hug and a handshake. God communicates his grace to us. Paul asked for books. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas also the books, and above all, the parchments. We don't know exactly what the contents of these books and parchments were. They could have included portions of Scripture, maybe some of Paul's own notes, maybe writings by other authors. Whatever the specifics, we know he's at least asking for material to read and probably material to write with. He's in prison. He has nothing else to do. I don't think anybody captures this as well as Charles Spurgeon. In fact, he preached an entire sermon twice as long as this one will be, on verse 13, called Paul, his cloak, and his books. 7,000 plus words on his cloak and his books. Let, Let me quote him at length here so you can enjoy this. Talking about Paul, he is inspired, inspired author of Scripture, and yet he wants books. He has been preaching at least for 30 years, and he wants books. He had seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which it was unlawful for a man to utter, yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher, give thyself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Brethren, what is true of ministers is true of all our people. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works. We are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to be spending your leisure is to be either reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. Paul cries, bring the books. Join the cry. That's why we have a book table. We don't profit at all. It's not to bring in any money. It's all just at cost. We have a book table because we want to be a church of people who read. 
who read good books, who fill our minds with helpful thoughts, who enter into conversations that have been going on between believers for generations, that we would be edified and strengthened for the sake of the ministry. And what about the cloak? Bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas. Could be that Paul was arrested in Troas and ditched some of his stuff with Carpus. We don't know the details. This is probably just a round blanket with a hole in the middle. Winter was coming. We know that. He just wanted it for warmth, which is an incredibly human thing for Paul to admit here. Can a cloak be means of sovereign, sustaining grace? I think so. I think so. Listen to John Stott. The help Paul obtained from his Lord was indirect as well as direct. He did not despise the use of means, nor should we. When our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothing. When our mind is bored, we need books. To admit this is not unspiritual. Some Christians get this idea that the more spiritual spiritual you are, the more you transcend out of this world and out of your need for anything in this world. No, we're humans. It's human to admit your need for these things. These are the natural needs of mortal men and women. Man is never for one more moment denaturalized by grace. We must not then deny our humanity or frailty or pretend that we are made of other stuff than dust. We're humans, and God gives his grace to us in simple things, which means you can learn to increase your capacity for enjoying God's grace by just increasing your gratitude every day, every meal you eat, every friendship you enjoy, every good and pleasant blessing you have. Just increasing your gratitude to God builds this awareness. God just lavishes grace on me. If you have clothes to wear today, just give thanks for that and realize it's a gift from God. If you have a house that's warm in the winter and cool in the summer, give thanks to God. He is so kind to us, and he communicates his kindness, not abstractly, but in tangible ways. And yet, Paul has a source of strength more reliable than friends, than books, than cloaks. Imagine Paul sitting alone in prison, coming to the end of his life, harmed by opponents, deserted by companions, restricted by chains. Who would blame such a person if he was anxious depressed, wallowing in self-pity, and yet we find him in these last moments confident and resolute because he knew that the mission of God will not fail, ever. The mission of God will not fail. The mission of God cannot fail. And that's what you must know more than anything else. The one thing you must know to be prepared, come what may, the mission of God will not fail. Verse 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The book of Acts records at least three other occasions when the Lord or an angel of the Lord stood by Paul and strengthened him. And every time it happens, it always follows the same pattern. The message to Paul is, do not be afraid, speak. Don't be afraid, testify. Don't be afraid. Bear witness. Every time, don't be afraid. 
open your mouth and speak. What does he say here? The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. God graciously sustained Paul through the sorrows and setbacks of ministry for the sake of Jesus' name, the sake of Jesus' fame and renown on earth. And God will do the same for you. He will. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed explained, declared in all of its fullness so that people could hear God took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He suffered in our place. He died a sinner's death. He was raised from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come back to judge the living and the dead and all who call on him in faith will be saved. That's the message Paul got to declare while he was on trial in Rome before all of the important people that think the supreme court of the land. It's possible the emperor himself was there and Paul stood with nobody else behind him to back him up and proclaimed Jesus in Rome. Jesus' name, Jesus' fame. So that the message might be fully proclaimed and so that, don't miss this, it's translated in the ESV, so that all the Gentiles might hear it. I prefer the translation all the nations, because the Greek phrase is panta ta ethne. Panta means all. Ta means the. Ethne, we get our word ethnic from that, means the nations, all the nations. It's the exact same phrase that shows up in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go make disciples of panta ta ethne, all the nations, all the nations. That's what God is doing in the world. That's his mission. It will not fail. So the psalmist says, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That will happen. It's a promise guaranteed by God himself. Psalm 72, 11, may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. So come fair or come foul, do not despair. The name of Jesus will be praised by people not a few. It's not going to be a small gathering. The name of Jesus is going to be praised by people more numerous than the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. That was his covenant with Abraham. It's going to happen. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so God will graciously sustain you through any sorrows, any setbacks in ministry for the sake of his global glory and for the sake of your eternal Good. Paul says, I was rescued. I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. How do we know? Because there was another man, like Paul in humanity, but not like Paul in sinfulness. And he too was abandoned by friends, opposed and mortally wounded by enemies. He had his cloak stripped from him. And yet God did not abandon him to the grave, but raised him up after three days. And that's the source of Paul's confidence and the source of our confidence that he will rescue us. He will. And he will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom to enjoy his glory forever. So Jesus is going to be famous on earth. And you will be safe forever. And so, 
we hold fast to him because he holds fast to us. And we say with Paul, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate this and we remind ourselves of this covenant you've made with us week after week after week. This is what we do every Lord's Day. And it never gets old. It's what our limited minds and our failing bodies and our timid hearts need every week to be reminded of your covenant that you have made with Jesus, the righteous one, and with all who are united to him by faith. So our eyes are on you and we are trusting in your ability to bring us safely home. And until that day, to cause the message of the gospel of Jesus to be fully proclaimed through us to all the nations so that your name would be great on earth and so that multitudes that no one can fathom would be gathered to your great throne to worship you forever. Come, Lord Jesus, let it be so. Amen.